is a story of a young man who applied for a job. And so he went to a local grocery store, and he asked the manager for a job. The manager says, well, I'll give you a job. Go outside and sweep the front porch. To which the young man replied with a certain look in his eyes, I'm a college graduate. To which the owner replied, oh, son, don't worry. I'll show you what to do. There's always this kind of friction, maybe you've noticed, I know I have, of, of, and we're going to use these labels, and they're pretty generic labels, but they make the point. But there's this friction between those people that we say have the street smarts and people who have the book smarts. You know the stories and you have the experiences, right? And probably most of us lean towards either side or the, or the other. Some of us don't claim to have any kind of smarts, but that's okay, too. But there's the street smarts and these book smarts, right? Scripture has that as well, especially in the passage that we have in Amos. But before we get too much into that, I want to paint you a picture of what is going on in the passage that we read from Amos chapter 7. It's apparent in Amos 7, even in the entire book of Amos, that the people needed some kind of smarts. Any kind of smarts would do. Thank you very much. And let me tell you what was going on. God's people were being oppressed. God's people were being marginalized and and set apart in a very bad way. They were poor and they were being taken advantage of. Now, here's the kicker. The people doing the oppressing and taking advantage of the poor were others of God's people. Y'all with me? And in the midst of all this going on, of, of people who should know better, God's people who should know better than to do, than to take advantage, and it's not even in just some individual kind of way, as a people, they were letting things happen that were pushing other people down. And in the middle of all that, God has this message that if you don't stop doing what you are doing because you know it is wrong, there will be consequences. Y'all with me? Now I want you to imagine you're one of these other people. And these other people, are, are they're well-to-do, they're well-off, they're comfortable. Some of them are maybe some of the higher-ups in society. So pretend you're one of those people and pretend somebody stands here in my place and starts to address you with with fingers ready and tells you that what you are doing is wrong. The way you treat those people, the way you think about them, the attitudes that you have toward them, the way you teach your children, everything you do about them, it is wrong. And if you don't stop, there will be consequences from God, no less. Y'all with me? Now, who are we going to listen to to say that kind of message? Who's going to be the one to step up and and to tell? Because, you know, that's, that's not a very easy message to give to people. But who is it that we'll listen to? Who is it that will at least say, what is that person saying? What kind of characteristics would this woman or this man have that we would say, that person has something important for us to listen to? What are some of the qualifications? that this person would need. 
Now, maybe there'd be some type of training, maybe some type of sensitivity that you know about that person, a background about that person. Maybe they went to a certain school. Maybe they're part of a particular political party. But what is it that you would let somebody say that to you? Part of what's going on this, in this passage, what I want you to realize, is you have the struggle between these higher-ups that we can call maybe the book smarts, and then you have another person like Amos who you might say has the street smarts, right? And you have them clashing, and that's why the one with the book smarts says, Amos, you got to go. All that stuff, you, you, go say it over there, please. This is not the place. Now, to be fair, in this biblical sense, In the biblical world, there have been prophets who have said the same message, more or less, that Amos had. And and they were sort of the the book smarts, we'll call that. Somebody like Isaiah, well-known, come from a well-respected family, all that kind of stuff. He was one of those. And he had the same kind of message in many ways that Amos had. But that was not Amos. That's not who Amos was. Amos is a minor prophet. Now, somebody like Isaiah we call a major prophet, and that doesn't mean there's anything insignificant about being a minor prophet versus a major prophet. Really what that comes down to is the amount of of information and text that we have from this prophet's uh, visions or uh, speakings or whatnot. So if you look at Isaiah, which has about 66 chapters, you compare that to the book of Amos, which has like nine, well, Amos is the minor prophet. Y'all with me? And then we can think about Obadiah, who gets a whole page. He's a minor prophet. But Amos is not one of those. In fact, when he's confronted, you've got to hear what he's saying, and I'm going to paraphrase. He says, look, I didn't, I didn't choose to do this. I didn't sign up for this. I was minding my business out on the ranch, doing what I do best, what I enjoy best. I wasn't worried about you city folk and all your business. I was minding my own business. God's the one that told me to come out here and to say what I have to say. And boy, did he have something to say, didn't he? There's this this powerful message that God has. But there's this simple man that God uses to say it. And then there's this simple illustration that God gives a simple man to give this powerful message. Do you know what a plumb line is? Essentially, a plumb line is a piece of string. Now, maybe if a bigger project, maybe use a rope or something. But essentially, it comes down to a piece of string with some type of anchor on the bottom of it. So that when I put that, if I have that anchor, and I have it in my hand and I drop it, what happens to the string? It tells me if something is straight. And if I compare that to a wall or some type of structure, I can see if that wall or structure aligns straightly with my plumb line. The message that God had was, my people are not in line with me. That's pretty simple. A string and a weight. But that message is very powerful, friends. Now, I say that to you because 
I don't know if you realize, we live in a world and in a time and in a culture where even as much as, us, as, as many of us that try to fight it or stand against it or whatnot, the reality is bigger is better in our world. He with the most toys wins and everybody else wants to play with him. Y'all with me? And that's why, you know, if someone can sing maybe more than the average person, we care about their life. We care about what they say. Or if they can put on a good show and know how to act, that means their opinion matters more than anybody else's. Or if they can dunk a ball, we really, really care about where they're going to play next year. That's not what the ratings say. Y'all with me? And, and even in our spiritual life, you know, many times I've heard people say, well, I chose to go to this church because, oh, it's a big church. So people make decisions about a church based on how many inputs their soundboard has or how big their budget is or how many pastors they have. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not saying bigger is bad. What I'm trying to do is just sort of confront this, this mentality or this way of thought that you and I, we fall into, and it's a part of our world. You can't get away from it. I'm not saying bigger is bad. It's the story of the world-renowned musician, and some of you know the details more than I, but if I remember correctly, he was a, a violinist, world-renowned. And he decided to do sort of a project, and he went to the streets of New York City, and he sat there on the corner, and he started playing. Playing beautifully, because this is what he does. And being world-renowned as he is, guess how many people recognized him? Very few. I think he, he made a couple of bucks that day. See, but because nobody recognized him as the big person he was, they didn't want to give him any attention. They just sort of passed him by. And they missed the beauty of what that man had to offer. And friends, I have to suggest and I have to think that you and I, in many ways, do that as well. God has these powerful messages to give us. But if it doesn't come in the big ways that we expect them, a lot of times we miss them. Now, sometimes those messages will come in the big ways, and they will come from the big preachers, and they will come from the big Bible verses, and they will come in big billboards for you. But I think we have to realize that in so many ways, so much of the powerful message, messages God has for us come in very not-so-big ways. And part of our job is to be able to see and to hear and to experience God in the many ways that our Redeemer is calling out to us. You might not remember anything I had to say this morning, but what you want to bet over lunch, we will talk about the cry of that little baby you just heard. That is a powerful reminder of God's love and presence here in this place just a little cry of a baby. Amen. Our job is to see, hear, and experience God. And what greater illustration, what greater starting point, what greater way to put that into practice than for what we have today. Because as far as meals go, if I told y'all that we were having lunch today, but we were just serving bread and juice, guess how many of y'all would stay? 
But you can't get much more simpler than bread and juice. But think about the powerful messages of love, grace, forgiveness, and redemption that God gives us when we celebrate Holy Communion. Would you pray with me?